This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Few curricular developments in American education have stirred more controversy than the 1619 project undertaken by the New York Times. The newspaper encourages teachers to use this study as their history text. It's a collection of essays that stakes the claim that U.S. historical development has been driven largely by the importation of slaves from Africa and the systematic deprivation of their full participation in American society and politics ever since. The year 1619, not the year 1776, when the United States declared its independence from Britain, is the country's defining moment, according to this collection because 1619 was the year the first slave ship arrived in Virginia, Britain's first colony in the New World. The New York Times essays are widely circulating in American classrooms. But, says Mary Graber, a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization, the essays are wrong in fact analysis and interpretation. And her recently released book entitled Debunking the 1619 Project, exposing the plan to divide America. She documents the reliance on bias sources, the use of misleading material, and just plain factual error. I am pleased to have Mary Graber with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Mary, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, Mary, you find numerous errors in the essays included in this uh, collection. Uh, some of them, uh, the New York Times corrected, some of them they didn't. Uh, but, you know, many historical accounts uh, contain errors of fact. I dare say some of my own historical-minded uh, books have had some errors in there which somebody could pick at. But that can't be your central point. Your book is too thoughtful and detailed for that to be your central concern. So what are your major, what's your major objection to the 1619 project? Well, the major objection is the way it positions what this country is about, that it was founded uh, in order to oppress Blacks. I mean, when the uh, Africans arrived in 1619 at some point in late August. We don't know when, we don't know exactly how many there were, we don't know what their status was exactly, uh, but it posits that that is the foundation of this country. That was an incidental event. Uh, at the time, slavery was being practiced around the world. It had been practiced since time immemorial in every culture. It was going on in North America among the tribes of North America. And so it was nothing unusual. It was part of everyday life. But then to take something like that, um, to take servitude, which was the common form of labor um, at that time, to twist that around and then say, well, the principles that you know, have been expressed in the Declaration of Independence, the idea of natural rights, of equal rights, of independence, uh, were not our founding principles. Our founding principles are exploitation. And that is just fundamentally wrong. Well, of course, 
During the War for Independence, the British Army declared free, slaves free, and I think it was the Carolinas, it could have been uh, more general than that, and many uh, African Americans uh, flocked to support the British side. Uh, it didn't work out very well, but uh, there was a concern about this um, freeing of the slaves that uh, motivated a lot of people in the southern colonies uh, to to realize that the the British were uh, a threat to their to their livelihood. So, how do you how do you respond to the point that's made in the '69 project that really at least for some, this was a major concern. Um, well, there just isn't um, the evidence to show that. The fighting had already started and Washington, <laughs> uh, General Washington uh, was, uh, you know, already up in, um, you know, the North and they were already fighting the battles. So how could that have been a precipitating factor? Yeah, you may have had a few plantation owners here and there who were alarmed by Dunmore's proclamation um, of you know, freeing the slaves if they would come over to the British side, but that was a war strategy. Uh, so many things had already happened um, th that you know, uh, you know, war had already basically broken out. So to say that that was a motivating factor um, is just plainly historically, chronologically wrong. Well, it is true that, you know, they, the war for independence begins in uh, Massachusetts. It begins in Concord and Lexington. It, it begins at Bunker Hill. It begins with the closing of the port in Boston. It, it be, it, and, and of course, the major initial battle takes place in New York City when George Washington, unfortunately, sets up his troops out there on Long Island and, and allows the British Navy to surround them. And he's just lucky to get those, that army off, off the island of Manhattan and, uh, and onto the Jersey Shore. And he runs down to Carolina and and it's only in the, you know, well into the war after the Battle of Saratoga that the Southern states really become active in the war. It's really a war in the North. But weren't there slaves in the North as well? There were, uh, yeah, uh, to a lesser extent. Um, but I, I don't see how <laughs> that impacts the interpretation. And Virginia had already. Uh, you know, uh, become concerned. And so the argument, and I'm thinking of the book now, uh, it's made more explicit that, um, you know, the state of, or the colony of Virginia has been overlooked and that it was central, but um, that is not the case. And uh, the issue of slavery uh, was not a, um, not a central concern. I mean, it, you know, the British, as I point out in my book, were, um, you know, encouraging the colonies to accept um, more slaves. They were uh, the top slave traders. So um, it, it really is something that is basically made up um, you know, by Nicole Hannah-Jones from reading Lerone Bennett, um, who was a, you know, Black power 
polemicist. Um, it's it's you know it's it's not really an important issue, and it's been debunked um, by others as well. Gordon Wood has written about it. He's uh, you know made statements about it since he has a new book out. National Review um, you know recalled all the events, and if there were a few as I said, a few plantation owners, an insignificant number who would be alarmed, and they were, that was not a critical factor in, um, you know, declaring independence. Well, so slavery was universal, as you say, uh, before the 18th century. And uh, it's hard to find a place where you don't find slaves for, for most of human history. Uh, but um, it does persist in the United States uh, well into the 19th century when it is fading out in many other parts of the world, especially in Europe. Uh, didn't the United States sort of um, perpetuate slave practices to uh, for a, a substantially longer period of time than elsewhere? Um, certain other places, but other places continued slavery long past after our Civil War. Uh, you still had it in, um, you know, the Far East. Um, it was still being practiced in Africa. Um, as a matter of fact, the last um, slave ship that we know about that came here, the Clotilda, um, you know, that was encouraged by the fact that an African chief advertised uh, through the media that he wanted to sell slaves. Uh, it was going on in Brazil. And um, yeah, uh, there was no slavery in Europe on the continent. That had been eliminated, uh, you know, long before then, uh, but there were slaves in the plantations. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, you know, some places eliminated it before the United States, some places eliminated it afterwards. In the late 18th century, um, the northern states that uh, gradually abolished slavery were the first governments in the world to do that. So there was a difference, yes, between the north and the south, but um, but you can't say that you know that the United States was way behind, and we fought a war over it. I mean, uh, you know, three quarters of a million men died in that war to eliminate slavery. Well, so uh, one of the one of the interesting points made in the sixteen nineteen project, it seems to me, is that they suggest that black people actually fought for freedom, and they did so in the wake of the Haitian War for Independence, which was a black rebellion against the French. Uh, power and uh, it was successful uh, and um, in part because the French you know had other uh, wars to fight at the same time and and fighting a battle on the other side of the ocean is is not easy as the British found out as well so so that mobilized there were slave rebellions uh, slave revolts uh, periodically before the Civil War and of course blacks fought in the Civil War 
So uh, would you agree that really part of the story of the struggle for freedom is the struggle uh, by Black people for their freedom within the American context? Well, anyone would fight for their own freedom. That's a selfish um, thing to do. Uh, there were abolitionists, white abolitionists, who had nothing to gain by fighting for Black freedom, and some of them gave up their lives. Uh, if you look at the Haitian Revolution, um, the leader there, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, Toussaint uh, Louverture, uh, he was a slave owner himself. Uh, a lot of the, that, that was a very complicated war. Um, you had, um, you know, people of mixed race uh, who were uh, considered themselves on a level higher than those who were darker skinned. Um, so you had a very hierarchical society. And if you read the um, chapter in my book where I discuss Fanny Wright bringing about 30 slaves over the radical feminist, uh, we don't know what happened to them. And when Haiti put out the call for immigrants, for black immigrants, there were no jobs there. They had, they had labor camps. They had forced labor camps where they put people to work to grow food. Um, and uh, the people who had emigrated from the United States desperately got back here. They couldn't wait to get back here. Um, they were suffering from disease, from hunger, and from forced labor. So, um, yeah, we do have to admit that things were not great for Blacks here in the United States, but they did not want to stay in Haiti. And you had a lot of corruption and a lot of instability in the numerous governments that happened after that, uh, or that you know were established after that revolution. And you had leader after leader uh, who came to power who um, was dictatorial and who was assassinated. So that Haiti is no model at all for a democratic government. And um, you know the, those who uh, rebelled against slavery, yes, they did so because no one wants to be enslaved. Uh, they wanted their own freedom. But what we need to look to in the United States are the principles that were set forth um, in the Declaration and in the Constitution, the great division um, between uh, the various political leaders of that time, the fact that they were uncomfortable with slavery, Jefferson tried to think of a way to eliminate it gradually without violence, while the rest of the world is not giving it a second thought. And you do have those abolitionists who, um, who had nothing to gain and who died for the cause. And there is absolutely no acknowledgement of that in the 1619 Project. You would think that every single white person uh, in United States history was an either a slave owner or benefiting from slavery and oppressing all blacks in some way and um, enjoying white privilege. <laughs> and that is just not the case. Well, in your book, uh, you devote a lot of space to the life and times of Thomas Jefferson. And uh, 
you have mentioned him again here, and he is the author of the Declaration of Independence, which says all men are equal, and uh, yet he is uh, a slave owner. He has a southern plantation. Uh, he never freezed his slaves. So how do you defend Jefferson from the charge of hypocrisy? It's true he did make statements saying, oh, it'd be nice if we could figure out a way to uh, free the slaves. But, you know, it, it's always, you know, oh, you know, I can't do anything about it right now. So uh, how do you defend him against the charge of hypocrisy? Um, do you own a cell phone or do you own a smartphone or a computer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, Do you know I'm, how your products are being made <laughs> uh, well, by the Muslim minority in China, most likely? Are you going to give that up? We live in a society where the products that we rely on, unfortunately, are not produced by free labor. Jefferson was born into a slave owning family, that was his milieu. He did free several of his slaves, so it's not entirely correct um, that he didn't free any of them. As far as um, you know, slave owners go, um, someone could do a lot worse than to be on one of Jefferson's plantations. I uh, go through, um, you know, the black slave owners, and uh, I compare the the way that Jefferson thought of his slaves um, to someone from Louisiana, a sugar planter, who went, you know, a black man who went up to Virginia to purchase slaves, and he just thought of them simply as property, didn't even give them last names, only had the first names and ages listed on a bill of sale as if they were, um, you know, uh, cattle or something. Jefferson did what he could do. Uh, he hated uh, if he had to sell any of his slaves. He tried to keep families together. Uh, he provided for them when they were in their old age, and he was um, limited by what he could do. The laws of Virginia um, stated that you had to send a free uh, slave out of state. Um, and it was very dangerous at the time to just let a free black um, out on his own. I mean, there was a sense of responsibility. Um, you didn't want these people dying. Um, of starvation or, um, you know, being captured and sold again. Um, so it was, a, it was a burden on him to care for these people. And um, he may not meet the woke standards of the writers of the 1619 Project, but for his time and his circumstances, he tried um, either through um, introducing legislation or, um, you know, doing things he could do in that respect, uh, he faced incredible opposition. And as you know, he died in, uh, you know, with a lot of debt. And one thing he did do and he insisted on was ending the international slave trade, which he called an abomination. So 
you yes, you you point out he really was much more sympathetic uh, slave owner than 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 others. Uh, but then that has led to the charge, and this is something you talk about quite a bit in your book, and I know our listeners uh, will be interested, is you talk about Sally Hemings, uh, who accompanied uh, Jefferson to Paris when he was the U.S. ambassador to France, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so, and now there's been this uh, DNA analysis that says that really uh, Sally Hemings' uh, descendants have Jeffersonian DNA. And you now say, well, actually these allegations that Thomas Jefferson had a relationship with Sally Hemings uh, is just not uh, well supported. So uh, could you discuss that? Uh, why you think, and that's, that's one of the charges in the 1619 project uh, as well. So how, how, how do you handle that issue? Well, that's a um, you know myth that was started by his uh, political opponents, um, a man who was angry because Jefferson would not give him a position in his government. Um, it was perpetuated by a newspaper of the opposite party. It was brought up again by Fawn Brody in the 1970s. Uh, she wrote a book, she speculated about it. She was a feminist. Then it was taken up by Annette Gordon-Reed. The DNA tests um, showed that one of the children um, was related to a Jefferson. It could have been any number of the Jefferson men. Um, a number of scholars got together and evaluated the evidence and uh, came to the conclusion that it was likely, I think it was Thomas Jefferson's younger brother. Um, the DNA evidence I th shows, I think, that biologically uh, there was a 17% chance that Jefferson could have fathered the youngest child of Sally Hemings. And he, I think he would have been 65 years old at the time. So, um, the, you know, the people who claim this are also the ones who happen to um, profess a belief in science with a capital S. But when you have the DNA evidence that shows that it is impossible that he fathered six of her children, um, they, say no that's not true they, they just ignore it or they contradict it and make up things um, and use political rumors and smears to make their case so the science is just not there and of course when um, it was proposed that more DNA testing be done to determine if that you know, slight chance of Jeffer Thomas Jefferson being the father um, be established, the family refused. So um, it is it is a, a smear um, with, uh, without evidence. And the evidence overwhelmingly shows that, uh, you know, Jefferson uh, did not father her children. So, um so the younger uh, the younger brother was um, was uh, on the scene so that he could have been the father was is that what was concluded? 
Yeah, I believe uh, in the scholars report, there were 13 uh, you know, noted historians who put together a report and he was said to you know, be someone who'd like to hang out with the slaves when they played music. And um, so uh, you know, there's no hard scientific evidence for that, but based on their evaluation of you know, Jefferson's character, um, they came to the conclusion that it, it probably was him. So how about the uh, uh, Sally Hemings uh, being in Paris with, with Jefferson? Were they in the same household? Were they, uh, what was, do we know anything about that, how that time was spent? Um, I believe uh, Sally Hemings did not go over right with Jefferson. She um, came over, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, with one of his daughters. And so she was brought over to take care of his daughter, and they were living in a convent. All right, so now you also talk about Abraham Lincoln as does the 1619 Project. And the 1619 Project points out that Abraham Lincoln said that he would free no slaves if it could save the Union, or he could free all slaves if it could save the Union. It was saving the Union that was on his mind. And when he did consider the slavery question, he felt it could be solved only by arranging for the transportation of ex-slaves to another country, perhaps in the Caribbean, perhaps in Africa. So he also indicated that he had the thought that Black people were probably inferior intellectually to white people. So, I mean, Lincoln doesn't, is not spared in their account. So how do you respond to the points that they make about Lincoln, which is, these points are, are, are probably not altogether wrong. So what's, how do you respond to that? I, I don't recall coming across, um, well, I mean, you, you have to remember, uh, Lincoln was a politician. The, you know, there were certain things that he could say and he couldn't say if he wanted to be elected. And uh, he admitted that the society was racist. He said that when he invited the six men um, to his office to discuss colonization. Some of them, by the way, did want to go. Um, and the place he wanted to send them was not that far away to present day Panama. Um, part of his motivation was that he thought that there would be conflict once they were freed. And he also, um, according to several historians, wanted to assuage white people's fears. Um, he was faced with circumstances. He did. You know, America was not woke <laughs> um, there, you know, I mean, at the time there was racism, there was prejudice, there was prejudice against immigrants. There has always been prejudice. And um, when Lincoln uh, discussed colonization at that meeting, he said, um, something to the effect of, uh, to these six men, black men, he said, you know, 
um, you don't, you probably don't like us very much and for good reason. In other words, uh, you know, we've done you wrong. And um, he recognized that slavery was evil. He hated it. But there is a difference between wanting to do something out of personal conviction and hating something and being able to do it as a political leader. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if he had said something during his debates with Douglas and in his speeches um, that, you know, strike some people as offensive, that does not mean that, uh, you know, he hated Black people or that he never felt that they could become a part of American society. And I think the best witness you have for that is Frederick Douglass. So, you know, in, in conclusion here, uh, just let me ask you this question, because I've had students in my classes say, okay, so we don't think it's a very good history, but um, it, is an, it is an interpretation, and there are many interpretations out there, and maybe this could be used as ancillary reading uh, in high school for students to, uh, to generate discussion. So is that an appropriate uh, place for the 1619 Project? No, because it is propaganda. And if you're going to be teaching history, it needs to be factual. I would have had no problem with Nicole Hannah-Jones writing a memoir about her own family. I think the story of her father is very interesting and I have no doubt that he faced discrimination as a black man growing up in the 1950s and the 1960s. I don't doubt that. But the story is complicated. He does not stand in for everybody. His story and Nicole Hannah-Jones's issues that she had growing up are not American history. And that's where the confusion is. She has feelings of anger and bitterness um, towards, I believe, all white people. And she is projecting that onto a history and twisting what actually happened to suit her own view. It's a warped view. Um, it is a personal view, but it is not historical. And, uh, you know, when I was teaching, I would teach the difference between propaganda and fact or propaganda and good literature. And uh, when you are using history, misusing history for your own goals, and her goals and the other writers' goals of the 1619 Project are far left political goals. And she has made that clear that this is a project that's advocacy for a certain end and that end is reparations. The final essay of the book is, on, is an argument for reparations and um, it reprises her essay that came out in June, 2020. History is not a subject that is uh, to be used for a political goal. 
history is studied um, in its complexity um, uh, as objectively as possible in order to understand the path, not to be warped for a political argument. Well, thank you, Mary, uh, uh, for explaining uh, your concerns with the 1619 Project. Uh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. I have been speaking with Mary Graber, a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization, author of the recently released book, Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.